Hi guys and welcome. This is Jen Gata Siciliano, artist, memoir writer, bipolar psychiatric survivor, and your host of Not As Crazy As You Think podcast, the place that offers an alternative perspective on mental illness, highlighting creativity, non-conventional healing, and breaking on through to the other side. If you are ready for a new narrative on the mental realm that celebrates crazy and cool without penalty, then Not As Crazy As You Think is for you. Hello, this is Jen Gata Siciliano, your host of Not As Crazy As You Think podcast. I am thrilled today to announce that we have Vesper Moore with us, an amazing individual who I'm thrilled to have on the show today. Vesper is a mad liberation activist, trainer, writer, and psychiatric survivor and COO of Kiva Centers. They have been advocating as a part of the MAD movement for several years, fighting for us disabled people, psychiatric survivors, internationally and nationally, consultant working for both United States government and the United Nations, shaping strategies that affect MAD and disability rights. Vesper is a queer, mad, indigenous person rewriting the narrative of psychiatry that has been forced upon us. Vesper, I thank you for being on the show. You're a wonderful influence out there. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your background for the audience, how you became acquainted with the mental health industry and what has brought you to where you are today in your work. My work. And my involvement with, you know, um, psychiatry, the mental health industrial complex, mental health system, however you'd like to refer to it as, um, as it, you know, it's it's very personal, um, mainly because of the the abuses and the harms that I experienced that, you know, were from the psychiatric system. I spent um, four years in and out of psychiatric institutions. So um, that really shaped my experience. It was it was seeing a lot of other people as well as myself who were harmed by a system who had their autonomy stripped away from them. And and the fact that, you know, we utilize um, a profession and, you know, to to incite, uh, you know, biochemical warfare on the on the public in such a way uh is it's just it's just so harmful and when i say biochemical warfare i mean that like in such a in, in such a specific way you know there are these medications these psychiatric drugs that are harming the public people are not informed of what it does to their bodies their minds how inherently disabling that is on top of how inaccessible systems are and how it affects our mortality and our lifespan, you know? Um, so I think for me, the inspiration between that work was being locked behind those brick walls and looking back and saying, I'm going to do something about this. I think every uh, activist in our movement really has one of those moments where they're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm gonna really speak out about this. I'm gonna really, really um, cause a fuss, uh, create a commotion, um, create a revolution. So. Yeah, it's almost like a pushback. Like I, I, the only way I'm going to be heard is if I full out fight this. You had had pretty a crazy experience. You were inside for a long time, right? Yeah, I was. 
Wow. Oh. And that so that really has shaped, I think, the visceral energy behind your movement, because, you know, someone like me, I didn't I was it throughout the course of my life, 10 days each time, but disabled each time, you know, because of the over like the push of, of very harmful chemicals into my body again, having to get adjusted and losing professional relationships. But I took a long time, I believe, to get on the bandwagon. Someone like you, it's almost like you were it was like an intensive course in, you know, the abuses of psychiatry. And then you threw yourself in. And that's so thrilling to me because, you know, you've done so much. One of the things that you always point to is the historical abuses of how this has been going on for so long with certain groups um, through eugenics, you know, early at the turn of the century, how that was going on with so many immigrants who were coming to uh, this country. Anybody who doesn't seem to fall in line with the traditional, uh, normal characteristics of what colonialism and the white man has pushed forth as, you know, these are the normals and these are the abnormals. This is how you line up. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. And I think even beyond colonization and colonialism, that there's also an aspect of how um, spiritually in tuned people have been and how emotional distress at, at times for people could be an, an inhibitor for survival that has caused the general public, right, to be like, we have to keep those people separate. We have to do this. And this has existed in some manifestation in different societies historically, as long as humanity has existed. So um, I do want to speak to that because there's like, you know, there, there's moments in like the Neolithic age where if like if, if people were, were believed to have bad energy in their skulls that other people would would use you know, rocks to actually chip out parts of their skulls to let that bad energy out. Mm. Um, and that was often, you know, like, like people who were, who were mad that their emotional distress or maybe their spiritual energy was like manifesting in such a way where it was like, okay, th there's clearly something wrong with this person. We have to address it somehow, this need to address this need to fix that has kind of evolved along with human beings uh, for so long. So but I think when we speak to uh, colonization and colonialism and the particular impact, we're speaking to how anyone who does not fit this cis, white, hetero, uh, patriarchal like uh, state of being could be deemed as mad because it is against the conventions of what exists in our society. And that's as well as approaches and thought processes and how things, you know, exist. I think people like to, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there's been some discourse historically about, about, you know, when we talk about mad liberation and psychiatric survivors and, and that inherent connection to, to oppressed identities, what does that mean? I argue that our movement is a global feminist movement. Mm. Explain that a little bit. That's very interesting. Of course, I I speak to that from from the respect of if you're thinking about how um, all people are oppressed, right? And you think about how um, particularly feminist movements in different waves have concentrated not only on what femininity is to society, but all identities, all oppressed identities. Um, and you think about 
you think about some of the waves with feminism that as you look at mad identities and particularly madness it has inherent ties to all oppressed identities so for example women um or rather specifically um people assigned female at birth Mm -hmm. receiving you know um or rather being ascribed diagnoses like hysteria um you know having treatments like womb uh i'm sorry ovary compressors Mm -hmm. um Things like, you know, there's there are horrible atrocities that have specifically occurred with people who are assigned female at birth. And that is like historically so important to psychiatric oppression that I Mm. I need to speak to that. But then there's the the, these occurrences have also happened to indigenous people with like, um, you know, specifically what was referred to as Indian psychiatric institutions and centers and, and 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 specifically how our spiritual identities, our culture, our race, um, so many important parts of who we are, uh, were deemed, you know, uh, crazy, were deemed mad, and we were put away. And, and again, you know, chemically restrained in such horrible ways. And then there's, you know, diagnoses around trans identity, there's diagnoses around, um, you know, gay people and, 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 you know, um, homosexuality specifically being a diagnosis for a period of time. So there's, you know, all of these oppressed identities that have existed historically. And then if you just think about the overall context of disabled people, if you think about disability and what is disabling in our society and how we can define like a social model of disability, that that's just it, you know, there's nothing wrong with our minds and bodies as we are, but rather society is not accessible to us. And that disabled people have always been put on the outskirts and isolated historically, you know, for very long time. So, you know, uh, if, if you look at Spartan society and how they would take a disabled child, a disabled baby specifically, and, and, and kill that baby mm. because it would inhibit the strength of a society, right? Or if you look at... Um, the 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 Holocaust alongside Jewish people, you also had gay people, you also had disabled people um, who who weren't necessarily Jewish, but also in those camps, right? You have uh, so many different societies that have just harmed and killed disabled people, mad people, and it's it's so important. Just recently in Singapore, there was a man who was incarcerated for 10 years um he had he had what was described as a learning disability and and a mental health diagnosis and this disabled man in the public was he was being charged for uh for bringing drugs into the country and they kept him for 10 years and they were going to publicly execute him by hanging Mm. and in Singapore. And, and the fact that we're talking about this now, this isn't something that is historical. This, this was last week that we were advocating and, 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 and I, I'd, I'd I'd witnessed a panel on this that, uh, you know, my my, colleague of mine, Emmy was on and I was just in sheer shock. I'm like, here I am going about my day in this horrible, you know, um, aesthetic capitalist society and here on the other side of the world uh, you know people are trying to fight for a disabled person not to be publicly executed yeah yeah 
And you know what's sad? I mean, you know, you look at it, this is a reality that's happening globally. But the fact is, we have our own set of Western brutality. So, you know, we don't take it maybe to that level. But, you know, interestingly enough, and I know that, you know, you're very involved with the international community. There seems to be a lot more alternative options, especially like with peer uh, support in terms of peer respite, stuff like that. Like in America, there's not that much. The limitations of what we have as alternatives when we have a very high emergency situation, um, they are so limited that we almost put ourselves in disastrous harm's way because that's the only option available to us. So, you know, your involvement with this peer support movement, like how do you see the future in terms of how alternative mental health systems can evolve? I know that you also have brought up that, you know, any healthcare system can become the next oppressor because, you know, that's the nature of systems. When you have people who are, you know, um, running things and placed in the positions of, oh, this is what I'm doing and I'm in charge and I'm something of a leader, that's how things can get misbalanced. So how do we prevent and how do we move forward in a more um, humane setting for for our future people who are in distress? Of course, of course. And I think, you know, I'm speaking to a lot of perspectives, you know, throughout this interview, I'm speaking to the anti-psychiatry, psychiatric abolition perspective. I'm speaking to the MAD perspective. I speak to the peer support perspective, um, you know, and I speak to the disability justice perspective. And I think a lot of those are interconnected and then they also all have conflicting ideologies um, for many different reasons. And I think that there's a lot of validity on a lot of different sides. And at the same time, I can see that, you know, when I, when I speak to my work as a mad abolitionist, that, um, it's, it's so crucial that we have all of these facets of discourse and ideology and actually, um, speak in conversation to, to kind of evolve the paradigm in our movements dash movement. Um, so when when speaking about peer support, you know, and peer support as a movement in its own right, the reason why I'm going to utilize the term movement is because movement is a gathering of people who share a similar ideology working towards a similar goal. And in peer support, in that respect, you have roots from the labor movement, you have roots from the psychiatric survivor mad movement and roots from different re- recovery movements and ideologies. Um, so peer support exists as a naturally occurring like alternative right to the existing um service system right the the, the existing mental health industrial complex that we build in community um or we can build in community but you can also embed it within which you know again you know you you end up stepping into co-opting and and what can occur with peer support inside of those service systems and and try to utilize it um, in a way to to kind of change the paradigm of how we approach uh, you know mad people and people experiencing emotional distress so uh, one of the things that I think is so important about peer support is is that is that the validity of peer support gives us the means 
to to self-sustain in community, similarly to how mutual aid does. You know, I think of peer support as survivor-led mutual aid. Um, you know, we're, we're we're building our own networks. That's a, that's historically why peer support was created, right? Was for that reason. And I I, I mean the formalization of peer support within the mental health industrial complex was created with the purpose of we're going to build our own services. You know, mm. we are our own experts. We can figure this stuff out. And those alternatives being built while simultaneously we dismantle the existing uh, systems that, that, that are oppressing us, the great thing about it is, is that now as we decarcerate and deinstitutionalize, our people have somewhere to go for support. It, it makes, it then ties into disability justice where we think about the principle of sustainability, right? Mm. It, is, it is sustainable when we work together and we are interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to build it, right? We, we, we have to have that. And I think that simultaneously, you know, with the racism of professionalism and the oppressive nature of professionalism, it's harmful to peer support. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's a give and take there where you have, okay, so we have these crisis alternatives, um, in the community that are important for us to have, for our people, for the liberation of our minds, you know, um, and then also we have peer support being used as a tool for manipulation and in an inherent industry that's being built out of them. It's so hard because what do you do? Do you come up with some kind of bill of rights of guidance and, you know, for each, because then it becomes something institutionalized, right? It's like, okay, well, these are the, these are the rules. Don't go beyond these rules. Right. But it's almost like a lot of what we want is just humane treatment. So it should just be human rights billing. Everybody should just kind of go by like, let's treat people like human beings. You know, this is something that I feel has been lost. I'm reading this book right now. And oh God, she's so amazing. It's called The Mind Fixers. I have read The Mind Fixers. Oh my gosh. It's so amazing because, you know, she like nicely puts everything into categories historically. And, you know, it's just a reminder of where these labels began. You know, it's just, okay, well, we don't like the way this looks. It's all behavior related. They never really, they, from the very beginning, they never discussed any thoughts that were in the heads of any of these people. So all of this nonsense that people have this idea that, oh yeah, I've discovered that I have schizophrenia or they've discovered this in me. All they're doing is describing behaviors. They have no interest in what's in your mind. And, and I guess this is something that something of a segue, you know, there's a lot of talk about psychedelic medicine on the, on the forefront. And, you know, you were involved with some amazing panels yeah. What was that called? Actually, I think it was Psychedelics, Madness and Awakening Harm Reduction Conference. Yeah. I'm going to have the links to that in your description for the podcast, if that's OK, because they were you know, it was really, really interesting because it did bring up a lot of issues that we have. I have discussed as well with others uh, about psychedelic medicine and that, you know, there's a sacredness to using plant medicine and that's because you know in these cultures right they have a whole 
way of approaching the plant and having a relationship with the plant and allowing really the plant to tell you what it needs to teach you. And there's that, that's not the way a lot of the psychedelic medicine approach is formulating. And then, you know, because there's so much psych psychiatric push behind it in uh, an industry. Um, and yet we also know that the approach is much more humane because a lot of these things are not a daily, you know, like pill, but they are kind of, I guess, co-opting, as you say, like, you know, the experience, a lot of these centers who are developing these research um, opportunities for people, the essence of what that plant medicine is supposed to do, the actual, the magic inside it is changed in some way so that it fits that colonial delivery system. Yeah, it's the it's the weaponization of plant medicine. So how do we prevent that? Yeah, uh, I mean, I would say that, you know, it's 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 almost inevitable that a lot of it's going to happen because there there's a seeking to regulate, you know, um, psychedelic alternatives. And then um, but within that regulation, which, you know, to, to a certain degree, you know, is it's, it's, it's to make sure that you're not taking too much of it. Right. Um, but, but also it's, it, it's the piece of like that these psychedelics are then not going to be affordable to the public. So it just becomes the rich white man's, you know, medicine alternative. That's not affordable to the mad unhoused person who might be struggling on the streets. So um, I think that there's a piece of that too. Uh, and, 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 I, and I think that that's often forgotten from the conversation, but I think a good way for us to, to avoid um, taking such, such wonderful plant medicines and, and industrializing them in such a way is, is actually um, considering that the, the, the distribution and application of it be in, in its natural form as much as possible and actually that, that that there is a there there would have to be groups that consider the fact of like um the the, the policies and regulations that would be needed to then in that mass distribution and how how these these medications end up being fda approved that that there's not other chemical um substances included right in, in these things and i you know i think that there there's there's infrastructure that needs to be built and that we shouldn't roll it out too quickly yeah i mean see it's it's difficult because you know the other part of me just wants to say well you know, why don't we just embrace a more inclusive, you know, understanding of what it means to do these things. I want to learn from the people who have used this in their culture for centuries. You know, yeah. I don't really want to care. I don't really care what the guy says, who's the expert and he's wearing the lab coat. Like to me, that doesn't mean anything to me. So, you know, like I hope that something is preserved along those lines. And I do know that a lot of people in the movement, they do want that. You know, they want yeah. that ability to say, well, listen, I want to use it therapeutically, recreationally, but I want to be able to distribute it in the way I need or, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just speaking in terms of us. Like we have governments, we, we exist in the ways that we do right now, you know, um, 
it, 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 perfect perfect ideal way of how this should be taken is, is there should be ancestral guidance yes there should be elder guidance right being like hey like this is how historically i have used it and and and, and, and my and my elders have used it this is how you can utilize it this is how you can release it from your body after utilizing it these are the things you can do and then having a shared network and of, of information in that way also having all that information compiled for future generations to pass on i mean there's there's a lot of indigenous societies doing this that's very hopeful for me because that's the vision that I have. Like, it's almost like in another lifetime, I hope that occurs. You know what I mean? Like I want to live in that world. So I hope that that's really something that gains a lot of backing and, and movement within those communities. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so too. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's the importance of when we talk about sharing indigenous knowledge, I think, you know, the, there is, there's the aspect of cultural appropriation and where exactly does that come in and right. where does appreciation come in. Right. In order to appreciate something, you speak to where it comes from and you preserve its history and you pay respect to that culture. Right. And as long as you are doing that, you should be fine. Um, I think it's always best to learn and contribute to the, the, the economies of those tribes and support them and, and, and the best you can. And, and in exchange, uh, we could learn from a lot of these these plant medicines that exist in these different tribes. Um, but I think right now our society is built in a way where where we're killing indigenous people. And, you know, just going back to how this all is reflective in the mad community and how so much of what we fight for, you know, um, is really, to me, fighting for the overall uh, umbrella of human rights. Because what I feel like what we found in the COVID experience is that everyone can't start experiencing mental distress. And then it was like, oh, OK, I almost felt like, oh, my God, like this is the, you know, the, the floodgates are opening like, oh, this is great. Like, let's get them all in, you know, like, come on, man, people. And in a way that hasn't changed much. But I feel like some people are still like looking for something and and they are always looking to the ex right uh, but what does an expert mean i mean certainly the people who have lived experience they know things that that others don't and and certainly they also know what it's like to be on the other end of things like <clears throat> sanism and 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 you talk about like ableism can you like share what those words mean because if these are going to mm -hmm. be part of the new conversation then I think that like people really need to know what those things mean. What do those things mean? And what are examples of those things shown in our society? For sure. And I'm going to, I'm going to also speak to something that, that, that my friend Matthew says a lot. And, and I say also, you know, lived experience being in the past tense. Uh, it, I, I prefer to say living experience. And we're all living now and we all have valuable information to share. And that there's this idea that if it is lived in past tense and you are recovered, that that is the only time in which your experience is valuable to be shared. Mm. Um, and then you, you spoke to of the interconnection of the mad movement, how, everything is kind of connected in that way and indigenous rights is connected in that way because in, you know indigenous societies speak to how the world was pre-colonization pre-colonialism psychedelics is important because 
when you utilize psychedelics, you enter mad states, if you will, of emotional distress to process information. And when you think of mycelium, which are related to, you know, mushrooms, those networks that exist within mushrooms underground and how they communicate to each other miles apart and how they're all interconnected, our society socially functions in a very similar way. And how, you know, and, and this leading back to our larger MAD movement, you know, and when I talk about, you know, multiply oppressed identities, when I talk about, you know, uh, racism, I talk about uh, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, misogynoir, transmisogyny, all of these things that exist in our society, they're all interconnected because as I said earlier, if you were not the cis white hetero you know, a uh, man in, in, in our society, then, then you are inherently against the convention. Thus, you are mad. Mm-hmm. Thus, you are the disabled. Thus, you are this, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if you exist counter to that, that that is so important. And that, and that is how the mad movement is actually connected to all of these social justice movements and identities and ideologies and, you know, in, 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 in that respect. And when I speak to ableism and sanism, Ableism um, asks that, you know, our our society is so inaccessible to to our bodies and minds and um, we 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 discriminate on the basis of, well, why why aren't you physically there? Why aren't you mentally there? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you there? You know, why aren't you contributing to the productivity mm-hmm. that neoliberalism capitalism would like you to, right? Um, something interesting that I was just reading about is called design justice. And design justice really speaks to how uh, accessible tools and things in our society um, or just just technology in general and, 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 and many different things are designed without considering oppressed identities, oppressed people. So um, and how a design justice framework really speaks to how do we design things intentionally in, in the consideration of all oppressed people? How do we make them more accessible? It's where tech, tech like technology and where disability justice and where information science and where all of these things meet in the middle, right? Is design justice. And it's 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 so important to, to our ever-evolving society, especially as technology and uh, the use of social media, uh, you know, uh, is is is, is at the at, at the center of a lot of our emotional distress. So I, I wanted to mention that too, because there's a mass marketing of human information. When we think about what is popular in Silicon Valley right now, it is what makes you tick, what information we are selling, which is the same weapon that the mental health industrial complex has utilized for years. And it is, it is at the center of that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, all the genetic studies that they do, the uh, genome-wide association studies where they just basically collect tons of information. That's the new way to find a biomarker. They are developing blood tests where they take all the information from all the bipolars and these are the things that they have in common in their blood. Meanwhile, what are these things? These things could be all the creativity, all the, you know, the abilities to, to interact with our ancestors because we hear these voices. It's like they start from the beginning, like these are the people who don't add up and these are all their genes and let's learn from that. 
nobody gets into the space that is, you know, opening up to, you know, the magnificence of the universe and those connections. Nobody's even asking you a question as to how it's going on. And again, that's kind of the interesting link with psychedelic medicine. It's a joke because all of a sudden psychiatry is like, oh, yeah, we're interested in what's going on inside of the mind. You are dealing with your own trauma as you go through this experience and, you know, we'll lead you through it. Well, you just basically for like over 150 years have said that what's the personal individual subjective experience doesn't matter anyway, because it's not real. It's only objectivity that we can measure, which is behaviors. So they are, as they are trying to claim the next revolution behind these new, you know, plant medicines or that they're going to start rolling out. They are also saying that, all right, well, now we're rewriting how we view it, but we're still in charge. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, they're, they're not talking about that war on drugs. That was a war on race and a war on the hippies. Yeah, that's right. Because it all started right in the 60s and 70s, yeah. where everyone was like it, doing their psychedelics and the world started falling apart in their minds. And, and I look back at that time and I'm like, oh, my God, like that could have been the time, the turning point. And instead, the war on drugs came in. It was containing a state of awakening, a state of madness that that would liberate the public. And then, you know, during that early, those early 80s, it was 1980 that the DSM-3 came out when they started like really, really pushing more than ever the biochemical model. And it was yeah. like one in the same. It was like, well, we can't use your, we don't want those drugs to, that you guys have that are going to awaken you. We're going to use our drugs and we're going to give these to you because you guys actually have mental problems. Because this is really what it was. They 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 put a lot of us in that group who were on the fringe, you know, of society. What's really interesting about that is, is you know, uh, being someone who, uh, you know, another piece of my work is working with Madness Network News and those historical archives of of our movement in the United States and then internationally. That around 1984, that anti-psychiatry journal disbanded it was actually all of the all of the information related to it was thrown into really? the ocean and it was right around the time where 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 what you were describing happened right and then the professionalization of peer support huh. so it was kind of like let's give a little something to all of you let's you know the rowdiness calms down a lot of our people are dying right because they're they're overdrugged you know because of these medications and and then you know um and then we see like almost a subsiding right that occurs along with a series of other movements that were occurring at that time and and and, and psychedelics and oppressed identities and, you know, and, and, and survivors of many different contexts were at the center of that. That was what the government was seeking. Right, to right. And that's no secret. You can look at the Absolutely. Nixon administration. Um, there were public statements released about it. The only way they could control the blacks and the hippies is, is, how, is how the quote refers to it as was was if they made marijuana illegal and they associated it with the blacks and cocaine and, and so on and so forth. Right. So, yeah. And let me go back to what you were saying. Also, I know that you are now involved with preserving that or revitalizing really the madness network news. Now, when you say that it was like thrown into the ocean, like, are you using that like 
figuratively? No, no, I'm, I'm using that literally. That was a conversation that I had with, uh, with, with Sally Zinman a few years ago. And she said some of the last editors who were part of that paper had discourse amongst each other because there was a separation between, you know, uh, members of our movement who are going the anti-psychiatry route and the members of our movement who are going the consumer route. And, and they didn't want to co-opt madness network news so they wanted to destroy it and they threw it into the san francisco bay it It was i don't know if everybody understands how terrible that is because at the time there was no data that you can get anyway else everything was hard copy and once that was destroyed that's destruction that's it there's no reclaiming that it's not like you could find it on the internet somewhere it's over yeah see that's so sad to me i really didn't realize that and then you had mentioned that and i was like oh my god like we are truly starting over they had documented how they got there they had documented contacts that they were (sighs) sending things to they had documented a lot of things all that (gasps) went into the ocean The, the historical archives you find now are generally through universities or libraries or different spaces, right? Well, now, now because of madnessnetworknews.com, they're in a central place that's not owned by an academic institution, which was my goal, and uh, and accessible to the public for free. So, and 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 the idea with that is is that so people can read through and be like, this is these are the very beginnings, and you can follow it and see what happens you know, and how we led to where we are now. That's amazing. So people can access that material right now online. There's like, yeah, madnessnetworknews.com. Everyone check that out because this is huge. Yeah. They, they just go under the archives and you can see scanned copies. I did work on some accessible copies, um, but there, you know, we're building a team around transcription to type all of them out, uh, you know, so that takes some yeah. time, but all of the scanned copies are available and you can zoom in and, wow. and do what you need. That's mm-hmm. incredible. This, you know, the effort that you're leading, it's really revolutionary and is unbelievable. And, and, you know, we are getting very close to running out of time and that just, it kills me because I have to have you back because I barely got through any of my notes. Okay. Let me just point out a, just a couple more things. Okay. Because they're so important. There's a couple of things that you talk about in terms of identity and capitalism. But one thing that you say is value is not inherent on what we can produce for a capitalist society, but rather what we can determine value for ourselves. So in the way that we treat mental illness, it's clear that we place value on the wrong issues. Like, how do we reclaim the right values? How do we push those new values forward? Mm -hmm. Such a crucial question because the thing is, is that you have to dismantle capitalism to to achieve it. Um, right, <laughs> you, you just have to. And the thing, and the reason why I say that is, is that it is contingent on you know, capitalism is contingent on what we can produce and what and, and what we do. It just is. That's how it was constructed. That's how it, it has existed. That is how it exists now. Um, and and the thing is, is that is that as long as, you know, um, our madness and quotes inhibits what we can produce or what we can do right uh, by the definition of this society, it'll always be problematic. Right. So in order for us to get there, we would have to dismantle it. 
please. How is this going to happen? We have to call out for this dismantling. Well, you know what? Part of the dismantling is is letting go of our attachment to it. Yes. Because once we start saying, well, you know what, we don't really need. I mean, I try to live like a non-capitalist life. Like I just simplify my life to such a degree that I try not to, you know, I mean, I'm all about frugality and like stretching any small dollar I can make because I don't want to invest in making any full time commitment to like working in within the system. Um, so there's different choices, I guess you can make. And then once you start making those choices, you start seeing this doesn't have to be the center of my understanding how things should be we tend to like idolize our system here as if we have it all together and this is the best system that's ever been created so far it's really ridiculous so i i just i pray that these things start changing and i am just so thrilled that someone like you is out on the front lines putting so much more light on such an important subject and you know this there's just a million more things but what i i wanted you to just give me one uh just last insight on why this is also speaking to i guess a spiritual issue mm-hmm. if you could just give me a quickie on that because there's so much there but i don't want to leave this conversation without you giving me a little bit of your insight on that of course so this is a spiritual issue because there is this idea of, and, and historically this has existed in a lot of uh, spiritual practices and religions, you know, you have, uh, if you were to think about like a multi-theistic religion uh, or, or, or a pop polytheistic, sorry, um, versus a monotheistic, right? If you look at like Judaism, for example, if you look at early Kabbalah, right, you have the idea that, 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 what what is now defined as God, right, exists in multitudes, exists in a lot of different spaces, exists in in all of us, right? We are all God, and then you see that in other mm-hmm. practices with you know uh, with, with paganism and 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 other spiritual spaces where um, where there are many gods and there's an interconnection to nature and life and everything. Such a big perspective, right? when we get right there and the thing is is that is that when we speak to um madness and we speak to what is defined as mad the state of hearing voices um extreme experiences or otherwise as we define it in our society it's often a connection to that divine or that spiritual that we then criminalize and demonize because it doesn't exist within the confines of the christian hegemony um and I think that that is so, so important to speak to when we speak to mad liberation. We're also speaking to spiritual liberation on many fronts, a state of awakening, a state of spiritual emergence, reemergence, if you will. Um, I, and, and, you know, I, I, I always think of the term spiritual emergence or awakening. I mean, the thing is, is that we're, we're there, we're here right now. Yeah. We're actually in that spiritual state we we just don't know it we don't often know it when we just need to tap into it and sometimes to tap into that network if you will it involves going a little a little mad a little crazy yeah yeah i think you get there through madness sometimes you know so embracing the mad journey guys that's what this is about (laughs) so listen vesper you 
are accessible to people, okay, how can they find you? Um, can you give us your social media links, any other kinds of things that they could look up? How can you be located and all this stuff be seen? Follow me on Instagram at Vesper underscore J underscore more. You can follow me at Facebook, which is uh, at Vesper more 777. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter. I believe that is at more Vesper LinkedIn at Vesper more. Um, you can also just type in Vesper more and see what comes up. It should be something that you make sure you do today because it's amazing stuff. Yeah. Vesper, thank you so much. You are amazing. I am thrilled to, to, to meet you, to, to begin this discourse, and hopefully we can have more conversations like this. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Not As Crazy As You Think, and don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And remember, mental health is attainable for anyone, especially those labeled with mental illness. Until next time, peace out.